For most of the 19th century, Beethoven's Symphony No. 9, the Choral, was simply the most colossally ambitious symphony ever composed. Written in 1824, it was considered so difficult, especially its choral finale, that it must be impossible to perform. That was until Wagner took it up on Palm Sunday 1846 and showed the musical world how wrong it was. At the same time, however, news was beginning to filter through of another highly ambitious and very difficult symphony, composed in 1826, but not heard until 1839, eleven years after its composer's shockingly premature death. This was a purely orchestral symphony this time, but it was conceived on an immense scale, and it was very challenging indeed for the players, not just in the technical demands it exacted, but in the sheer energy and concentration it demanded from the performers. symphony is by Franz Schubert. It's usually referred to as number nine, the great C major. As I said, it's a purely orchestral work, and the scale is far larger than in any of Beethoven's purely orchestral symphonies, but the example of Beethoven's ninth was extremely important to Schubert. There's even a kind of cheeky acknowledgement of Beethoven at the heart of Schubert's marathon finale. Clarinets, then oboes, slyly recall the famous Ode to Joy theme. The demands made by Schubert are pretty extreme for the late 1820s. One innovation of Beethoven's was the addition of trombones to the classical orchestra. In Mozart and Haydn's time, the full orchestra was just pairs of woodwinds, horns, trumpets and timpani with strings. But Schubert makes his trombones work far harder than Beethoven. They're active in all four movements, one moment leading the romantic expression, the next charging forward with displays of muscular acrobatics.
Schubert's great C major is hard work for the strings, too. Now, as anyone who's accompanied one of Schubert's songs will know, Schubert loves to create long strings of repetitive accompanying figures, and sometimes they're very difficult to play, like the thrilling, pounded, repeated notes that open the famous song Erlkönig. It's the sort of piano writing that can lead to repetitive strain injury. the second theme of the great C major's finale, Schubert gives the violins and violas this figure to accompany the woodwind's song theme. It runs on for page after page of score. It's extremely hard on the muscles, and this, while everyone's focused on the woodwinds, it's just about as ungratifying to play as you can imagine. And so on for page after page of this 1154 bar long finale. And Schubert doesn't actually make it any easier practically, for example, by sharing the figure equally between the first and second violins. No, the firsts have to play pretty continuously. When Mendelssohn, who conducted the premiere, tried it out with the London Philharmonic Society, the string players collapsed laughing. Surely Mendelssohn couldn't be serious. But the Great C Major Symphony is also a big challenge for the listeners. If you do all the repeats, it lasts well over an hour. And it's just instrumental music. There are no words, or literary programme, or even a title other than that Great C Major, to help you understand what's happening. No one had tested an audience like this before. The composer Robert Schumann, after hearing the premiere, wrote about the symphony's heavenly length but it was quite a while before the rest of the musical world began to agree with him. Now, though, it's a long time since I've heard anyone complain about the length of the great C major symphony. So why does it work? Why doesn't it sound overly repetitive, stretched thin, or just garrulous like someone talking compulsively, unable to stop? That's because there is a prevailing sense that Schubert's symphonic thinking demands this length to work through what it has to say. Compare the opening of the great C major with the opening of Beethoven's Fifth. There's a classic example of setting a symphonic argument economically in motion. We have the famous germinal motive, da-da-da-da, and then a ferocious concentration on its form and energy builds us very quickly to the first climax and the turning point into a new section, the presentation of the second subject. <laughs> Thank you. 
Schubert sets out in a very different manner from Beethoven. This is definitely not a headlong rush, but much more like someone setting out on a walk, testing the air as he takes his first steps, and we begin with a wonderful long horn theme. This first section is often described as a slow introduction, but it's not really slow. Schubert really asks the conductor to beat two in a bar, not four. It sets a much livelier pace. And it's not at all like the typical classical-era symphonic introduction. There's no call to attention followed by a preparation for the main allegro. This opening theme is clearly a very important theme in its own right and what follows is more like a free set of variations. There's a steady build-up in grandeur and lyrical intensity until the main allegro does burst forth, and now we have a short motif, apparently like Beethoven's Fifth. Now that's a bit more like the restless surging forward of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Yet it's also evident that the new compact motive isn't really new at all. It's really a kind of compressed echo of that original horn theme. We have the striding dotted rhythm and something like the horn theme's contour. That connection seems to have struck Schubert after he'd written some, or perhaps even all, of this movement. Originally, what he wrote was rather trite. Then that rather better version struck him, and he went through the whole movement, crossing out the wrong notes and adding the right ones. It strengthens what we've already sensed, that where Beethoven would have begun his main allegro movement with completely new material, or at least material in contrast to the introduction, Schubert makes his allegro a continuation of what we've already heard. You can sense that throughout the movement, for example in this wonderful passage where the trombones take the lyrical lead. It's clearly a further development of that original horn theme. Thank you. 
trombones unmistakably recalling and developing the original horn theme. And that little woodwind figure at the climax... comes straight from the original slow introduction. This kind of cross-reference between what the textbooks would call the slow introduction and the main movement is utterly new in symphonic music. It makes one sense that it's all really main movement. We have those subtle interlinkings between the sections, and yet it's also the walking pace of the introduction and that sense of broad spaciousness it creates that's the real heartbeat of this movement. It sets the pace and the way the music breathes, and brings with it that sense of scale. The landscape of this symphony is big, and it takes time to walk across it, even if you're going at quite a determined stride. So we have a sense of walking, sometimes slowing down to take in the wonders of some vista or an intimate village scene, sometimes urging oneself forward. We've got a mountain to climb and only a day to climb it in. All that runs or walks throughout this symphony. Even the official slow movement, the second movement, isn't really slow. Is there any really slow music in this symphony? It's darker, it's in a minor key, maybe now we're walking through the forest or through a nightscape, but it's still clearly a walking pace, with the oboe tune like the kind of melody you whistle to keep your pace and your spirits up. There's a slightly nervy quality to that tune, like someone whistling in the dark, maybe. And that introduces another important aspect of the romantic notion of the sublime. Nowadays, when we use the word sublime, we mean something exalted, particularly something serene. But for the romantics, the uplift could be giddying, like looking over an alpine precipice, or it could even fall over into terror. This becomes apparent as the second movement builds or marches to its climax. This is turbulent, fearful music. And listen to the trombone's great shout as we reach the extreme dissonant high point.
Schubert lets that dissonance shudder into silence. There's no classical harmonic resolution here. There's an awed hush as string pizzicatos register the shock, and only gradually is peace of mind restored. Schubert looks into the abyss and then draws back. There's much more of this romantic, sublime terror in the finale. Do you remember those four repeated notes that introduced the big crescendo we've just heard? They are very much present in the finale. They introduce and lead the woodwind song theme that we've already heard. But the big flowering of that figure, if that's the word, is in the finale's terrific coda. There's a hint there perhaps it's more than a hint, of something Schubert would have known very well, a great terror moment from opera, the arrival of the statue of the Commendatore in the midst of the dissolute party in Mozart's Don Giovanni. It's particularly the figure that occurs as the terrified Leporello tells his master of the stone fist striking at the door. Ah, signor, per carità, non andate fuori di l'uom di sasso, l'uom bianco. Ah, padrone, io gelo, io manco, se vedeste che figura, se sentiste come fa, Amongst Schubert's audience, or at least intended audience, many would have known that passage and felt its reverberations. It helps explain how a symphony that so often seems joyous, exhilaratingly full of fresh air, can also feel poised on an emotional knife edge. In this finale, the race, like that of nature itself, is clearly a matter of life and death. <laughs> 